this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Christian Long, and I'm here with Alexander Sargent. You can find him at fantasy-animation.org. That's a podcast about, you guessed it, fantasy and animation. Uh, He's also a lecturer at the University of Portsmouth, and we're here today to talk about his recent book, Encountering the Impossible, The Fantastic and Hollywood Fantasy Cinema. It's on SUNY Press. Alex, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. I, I, I'm a big fan of the New Books Network, and um, one of the reasons I started with the podcast was because I was listening to to your podcasts um, so frequently. So it's a real uh, privilege to be on it this time. Excellent. So we've already started off with positivity. Love to hear it. Now, <laughs> It'll go downhill quickly, I'm sure. Uh, we can only expect that. Now, I really I, I love this book. I'll talk about how much I love the Conan stuff in a little bit. Uh, probably my favorite part, but I figured we would start. Um, I'm not exactly strongest uh, in kind of a knowledge of psychoanalytic film criticism. It's not really my bag. So I'm probably going to ask some questions that might be a little rudimentary, but I think that can lay some groundwork uh, so that we can then talk about, especially Conan, Mary Poppins, and I think the Ray Harryhausen and stuff is also really great. So if you'll, uh, if you'll teach me a little bit, I'll start out with a, a few groundwork questions. I'll do my um, best. Supposedly it's my job, but I'll, um, I'll see how I do. <laughs> now, one of the first things is, uh, it's quite early in the book. Most of these are going to be coming from the introduction. We'll almost go chronologically through the book. Is that you write uh, a theory of the role fantasy plays within the act of watching cinema. Uh, we prefer to think that the experience, experience of being a film spectator is essentially, essentially an extension embellishment or intensified version of what it means to witness everyday life mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yes uh well we do when we're watching most film fiction um and i say i use the word we in in that sentence to kind of mean two people um i do mean the the implied audience member um part of the culture of film that we're we we live in is one in which we're sort of trained in a certain uh, appreciative framework whereby we we expect cinema or want cinema to be realistic or naturalistic or feel real. There's lots of these words that we'll use to describe positively the act of watching anything from a big blockbuster to some art house movie that that it couches the experience as if it were real life. 
and this is true of film um, academic, academic work and criticism as well. Often, um, film critics and certainly fall into this kind of vocabulary. And indeed, in the history of, of psychoanalytic film theory, there is this assumption that the power of cinema is in its ability to kind of impart or imprint an impression of the real upon the spectator. So there's an assumption um, that I try hard to, to kind of um, to correct or to think through or, or out the other side of in the book um, that that we want cinema to feel real and that cinema's at its most affective and effective when it is feeling real. Now, uh, whether I guess what I guess by the nature of your question though, do we? I would argue, no, we don't. Uh, and that's what this book project is trying to explore is actually, although we've been trained to talk about cinema in this way and think about cinema in this way, one of the great pleasures of fantasy cinema, one of the great pleasures of, of a thing we might come on to talk to called the fantastic, a kind of aesthetic writ large throughout the cinematic experience, is this pleasure of, of things not feeling real and not feeling like everyday life. And, and it, that sounds quite obvious when you say it out loud. Of course, we don't want cinema to be like everyday life. Uh, everyday life sucks. Uh, that's why we like cinema. But we, we don't give ourselves license culturally or theoretically, both in academia and, and as sort of film watchers, to, to, to give voice to that impulse and that desire and that pleasure. And I, what I've tried to do in the book is, is give voice to that. Okay, so kind of almost immediately after that next page in the book, you you kind of pose a couple of questions, and so they kind of spurred some questions in me. And you ask, why do we like encountering the impossible? You've already given a little hint just now. And then, what is pleasurable about experiencing the situations that we know cannot be real? And I guess my my question there, one, can you elaborate a little on why do we like? But then, even more so what is a situation, uh, especially inside the, I guess we could say the confines of your book? Yeah. Okay. So I guess, I guess your question is, is, is the two questions are kind of highlighting a paradox that I, that I, that I'm trying to highlight in that introduction and then try to explore throughout the book is that there's this binarism that I've sort of alluded to in that previous question that, 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 the more you think through, the more it doesn't make any sense. And the binarism goes like this. Um, on the one hand, supposedly film um, has the perception of reality. Film feels realistic. Film feels naturalistic. Um, that's the pleasure in it. We suspend our disbelief and essentially try to treat the film like it's everyday life as much as we can. And then the other binarism that we also will throw at cinema to, to discuss and, and articulate our pleasure is the idea of escapism and the idea of, of course, what's pleasure about cinema is how not like everyday life is. And psychoanalytically, but actually just kind of, you know, cognitively, common sensely, I don't really like that word, but, you know, on a kind of intuitive level, um, both of those things don't really make any sense. I've explored why the first one doesn't make any sense. But there's also this idea that obviously there's something natural or, or obvious about enjoying impossible, outlandish, far-fetched situations, but, but that doesn't actually work in terms of how we know the human mind to be. The human mind is anything obsessed with order and regularity. You know, it doesn't like things that are outside normality. If I was to finish this interview and go buy a loaf of bread and I encountered a leprechaun on the street, um, that would not offer me some pleasurable encounter with the impossible that I'm arguing exists in this film. That would probably send me either into a psychotic breakdown 
or require me to change my world belief quite substantially. You know, we, 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 we construct a context by which we experience life, you know, situations, an ideology, a sense of meaning of which the world ticks along towards. And that's what we want out of life. That's what we want out of everything. There's nothing more frustrating for an undergrad student than to show them a film that they feel like doesn't have any meaning. Um, and yet those films often involve encountering impossible sensorians and impossible scenarios. So the paradox that, that those questions are asking the reader to think about, and I try to think about throughout the book, is that that this thing I call the fantastic, based on a kind of literary tradition, is actually exploring and engaging with that paradox, is that we don't want fantasy to do either of those two things. We don't want it to seem like reality, we don't, but we also don't want it to question our reality at the same time. And the license fantasy fiction can give us is that it, it declares itself to be beyond the real or transcendent of the real. It's not counter-real, um, it's... it's, it's alongside the real as something else as something to be explored but to be but but it but it makes no sense to engage with some of the fundamental building blocks of fantasy storytelling as if it were real life that's not where the pleasure lies the pleasure lies in accepting that it isn't like real life and finding another way to engage with it because that was you already you you predicted the next question i was going to ask is what what does it mean to kind of believe in fantasy films and that's what you kind of got at and you talk about a little bit later in the introduction about breaking free of our quotidian constraints. You call it restrictions of rationality. Uh, so maybe um, maybe I'll get a little quantitative. What's the percentage that needs to be kind of rational? You know, the, like not the leprechaun when you're buying the loaf of bread, but something perhaps not entirely expected. Like what kind of fantasy? kind of exist in that realm of what you're calling like a realistic, naturalistic movie? And then how do we know we've tipped into the realm of the fantastic? What are the, you know, is it when it gets to 51%? What are the, what are the indicators of, of reaching that space? Yeah, sure. You can answer the question in two ways. In, in obviously, speaking from a psychoanalytic frame of mind in the book, the two things are happening at once in everyday life all the time right so if i let's try and think of an example um i think i provide this in the book actually but i'll use it here as well because i can't think of a better one if you're walking down the street late at night and you decide to cut down an, an alleyway um, a deserted alleyway and you feel fear at that moment um there is an interplay of fantasy and kind of for want of a better word, realistic meaning-making or rational re meaning-making going on at the same time. Our rationality might be telling us um, that that's the quickest way home, um, that's the obvious route, it's quite well lit, um, I can see to the other side and there's no one down there right now, um, it looks safe and it's the easiest way to get home, so that's the way I'll go. But our fantasy is, is creating a sense of fear because the space feels scary. And it's that sense of articulating emotion that fantasy is very good at. Fantasy is good at exploring and articulating our emotion, which is useful because it's useful to feel fear at all times. It's not always useful to act on fear, but it's always useful to feel fear. Um, and then the two things collide sometimes or the two things work together. When they work together, you don't necessarily feel the fantasy, right? Because the fantasy supports or supplements the, the kind of the logic meaning making that, you're, that you're, you as an adult in the world are, are, are conditioned to favor and to explore. 
one doesn't want to feel at the grip of one's emotions. One wants to feel at the grip of one's basic meaning making. And I'm not talking on a sort of severely intellectual level here. I'm talking like I need to go this way and that way to get home, that kind of, you know, basic meaning making. Um, we don't feel our way homes. We think our way home. Um, and, and, and when fantasy supports that, it's almost impossible to, to notice or, it, or, it, or it's very difficult to notice. But it's there all the time, bubbling away and supporting those sort of meaning making strategies. With fiction, and when you're encountering cinema, the rules are a little bit different. Um, w- the, the fantastic occurs when there is a severing of those two meaning-making strategies. Okay, So when one sees something on the screen that doesn't match our understanding of reality, we suddenly those two things are, are unlocked and they're working independently. Our, 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 our bodies, our emotions, our fantasies are telling us that there is a human on the screen. It's not just pixels. It's not just um, constructed um, special effects or CGI. When we see Gollum from Lord of the Rings, yes, we know it is a VFX image, but we are seeing a, a person. We're seeing a character even on a kind of intuitive level. We know it is not real, and yet we feel it. Okay, Now, that can work in lots and lots of different ways. Um, horror fiction explores that sense between feeling and thinking in a very uncanny, um, disturbing, abject manner. Sci-fi likes to somehow bridge the gap by allowing us to speculate intellectually about how we got there and what kind of scientific breakthrough we might get to. And fantasy offers a kind of playful other it says hey it doesn't matter and 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 what doesn't matter about this is that this is only fiction this isn't real life the stakes aren't as high you can feel without thinking you can you can that golem can be on the screen without that changing the nature of what a human being is outside the screen and that playful meet you know playful invitation into a lack of meaning is where the meaning is found if that if that makes sense well, it gets me right to my next question then. Almost like we, we've worked on this in advance. Um, <laughs> um, and talking about Alice in Wonderland, um, you say, I mean, this one you kind of just worked through. It's pr- precisely because we cannot identify with the c- creatures in Alice in Wonderland that we're given license to engage with them purely through the imagination. And then later you say, in the case of Humpty Dumpty, seeing is not believing. It is something far more primal and exciting than that. And so is that excitingness, what you're talking about, this kind of playful other position that fantasy offers kind of in between horror and and sci-fi? Yeah, in between horror and sci-fi, but also kind of rooted in in, in sort of, you know, childlike... um playful creativity right when 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 one picks up a pen i'm doing it on the screen for the sake of listeners and pretends like it's you know a sword or a magic wand or something like that what i'm looking at when i'm looking at the pen isn't just the pen i'm 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 seeing something that can be beyond the you know, raw sensorium of what I'm experiencing. I can look at aspects of the pen and start to imagine a way it can look like something else. You know, images are vivid. They're real. They're they're they're, they're graphic. They're um, pictorial. Um, they're that the you know that there are there are ways to experience these things which we do in art all the time as color, as pure sensorium, um, as all these kinds of things. Thing and and 
what I'm trying to do, yeah, in, in that chapter is, is is when I'm talking about Alice in Wonderland, I was talking about Wizard of Oz and It's a Wonderful Life, some classical Hollywood movies. It's trying to pick apart this assumption that what we're doing as spectators is wanting to identify with all the characters we see on screen. Um, we don't want to identify with Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty is an, is an incredible sort of Lacanian figure. He he um, he he speaks in riddles and and wordplay, but the wordplay doesn't really make any sense. And that's fun if you don't identify with him. If you see him as this kind of lawless creature whereby rationality cannot be thrown at him, that's fun. What Alice is trying to do in that scene is identify with Humpty Dumpty, and that's why she's getting frustrated. If she's trying trying to have a conversation with him like we might do, like we're having a conversation right now, that's annoying because you're trying to get meaning out of this character. Um, so almost Alice is dramatising on screen exactly what we shouldn't be doing as spectators. Um, what we should be doing is going hey he looks a bit like wc fields but it's silly um that's the fun we're supposed to be having and 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 we we, we don't let ourselves articulate that fun it, it has film scholars because it seems frivolous but actually it's incredibly vivid it's a way of perceiving images that that is completely you know contrary or, or completely in 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 parallel or or in a kind of antagonistic an antagonist on the other side um, to, to meaning making, and, and I think that that's where fantasy is at its most vivid and at its most, as I said, exciting. Articulate fun. If anybody think people can take that home, I love that. Um, so you just brought up the, the Wizard of Oz, and the one thing you really hammer on with the, in your engagements with Wizard of Oz is this idea of excess, and I'm wondering if you can uh, kind of speak on like. Yeah, I think everybody will have seen The Wizard of Oz, so I think it's a, a wonderful example, immediately accessible to, to everyone. Um, is the So the excess is in terms of form. It's just in terms of the experience. You just, uh, you just kind of articulated in terms of Humpty Dumpty. Um, does this excess kind of uh, transcend rather than uh, reject uh, particular meanings? Uh, like, does it kind of... It, it's kind of a grand opening up of more possibilities rather than a than a narrowing. Because to me, that's articulating fun is the the incredible openness that that uh, excess can generate. Yeah, I think I think I, that's a great way of putting it. Actually, I think I hadn't I hadn't I've never articulated it like that, but I like how you've articulated exactly. Yeah, I use the Wizard of Oz as I say in that chapter. What I'm trying to do is break down. Uh, I'm using three films, one of which probably people haven't seen, which is the Alice in Wonderland adaptation. But it's you know it's Alice in Wonderland. It's a it's and I would check it out. It's really great. Um, but the Wizard of Oz and It's a Wonderful Life are the other two, two kind of you know quintessential quote unquote classical Hollywood movies. If people, you know, I think the Wizard of Oz is still something like the most watched film in the United States. You know, it's 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 the film people have seen, even if they've never seen another classical Hollywood movie. And yet it defies all the rules of classical Hollywood filmmaking, at least as it's articulated in sort of you. You know the, the key texts on this thing, the Boardwells and 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 where you are, because because the film is constantly providing you with this what I call spatial excess. So the classic scene in The Wizard of Oz that I'm sure everyone can remember is where Dorothy steps out of the house from from sepia to Technicolor. Um, walks into Munchkin City for the first time and the camera kind of swoons around the um, the location before um, landing on Dorothy and she says her immortal, often misquoted line. Um, that scene has very little narrative significance. Yeah, it's it's a sort of akin to a to a musical number or an action sequence, but it's not it's not action packed and it's not musical. Although there is a kind of lifting score throughout it, it's just a slow pan around a set 
Yeah. Um, you, you wouldn't do that if you were introducing Kansas and you wouldn't do that if you're introducing Sam Spade's office in the Maltese Falcon. Um, you do it in the Wizard of Oz because you want the spectator to enjoy the space, to enjoy the feeling of the space. Okay. And, and that's, that's, that space for enjoyment opens up all kinds of possibilities. It's really difficult to start articulating those possibilities on the page. I've tried my best in the book, but I but I never wanted to close down spectatorial opportunities for interpretation. I suspect it in, depends entirely on mood, on context, on, on sort of who the person brings uh, or the spectator brings to those situations. There's a really great book on The Wizard of Oz by Salman Rushdie, who talks a lot about it from the perspective of, of, of being an immigrant. And the feeling of of exciting new lands and traveling from space to space, kind of chiming with his own experience of migration. I think that's a really, really open and available reading to that moment. But the key to it is it allows a moment whereby the narrative isn't being told to you. You aren't being asked to take in the information like you take in information in everyday life. There's a moment of excess whereby the, the space is there to be to be enjoyed and used as the spectator chooses to do so. Um, and that's the kind of that's where these little moments of, of, of the fantastic bubble and burst around in fantasy cinema that I've always found the most exciting and the most important, but often the least talked about in terms of um, film criticism. The Wizard of Oz has been interpreted by you know countless numbers of scholars, and there's some really, really great interpretations, but they're almost always based on, on the basic narrative building blocks of it, right? But the, but the film has all these moments of kind of liminal excess bursting around the scenes that seem far more vivid and exciting and, and meaningful to, to me, this, you know, a fantasy spectator, and to many others, than those kind of, okay, Dorothy goes here, Dorothy goes there, um, then she clicks her heels three times and says there's no place like home. Taking that narrative, the film's incredibly conservative. It's incredibly, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's based on the kind of, you know, it's very famously based on isolationist um, uh, World War II, um, pre-World War II American culture. It's sort of celebrating the home and, and the farmland and not looking beyond the, um, one's own front door. Take the narrative, it's quite a conservative text. Take these moments of excess the film offers so many other possibilities and actually the film celebrates going over the rainbow. So all these kind of assumptions about how we can interpret fantasy need to at least acknowledge this, this excess that lies beyond the narrative if they're going to reckon with what the aesthetic, ideological effect of these films might be. And that's sort of why I picked The Wizard of Oz. I think it's a it's a paradox of a film. To me, it's the most enabling and, and kind of progressive and, and anti- um, home movie there might be whilst celebrating how how home how comforting or, or or comfortable home is. Well, I mean, I think I think you do quite a bit in that because you close that section about the Wizard of Oz and you use words like thrill and euphoria, uh, which I think kind of drive at that. And so, when I, moving into another section of the book, when you're writing about Harvey, which you kind of admit not the most obvious choice, but I think. You make it work, and kind of along those lines, you just you just spoke about. You talk about when you're watching Harvey, and some of the moments that uh, you you pull out, especially in Jimmy Stewart's kind of interactions with this invisible rabbit. You say the spectator sacrifices rationality in exchange for pleasure. And my my question was originally going to be, um, can you broaden that? But you've already broadened it in terms of Wizard of Oz. Um, that the the kind of the rationality of following along and seeing the kind of the, the, the containment that a lot of narratives can do if we kind of pull back from the narrative uh, and, you know, the second story, if you will, uh, is the, you know, these fantastic spaces, uh, these fantastic moments. 
um, there's a different sort of pleasure that awaits us. Can you can you give us another couple of examples just off the top of your head uh, for moments like that? Um, in Harvey or, or, or... Well, Harvey or kind of more broadly. Yeah, sure. Well, well I mean, I, I, fundamentally, I think all fantasy films do that. They, they all provide these kind of moments whereby... Um, you are asked. Well, that then ultimately that is what the fantastic is. That's what the encounter with the impossible I'm alluding to in the title is. Is it's a it's the a moment the screen triggers you to make a choice. Do you do you choose the rational path or do you choose the pleasurable path? The uh, an analogy I, I I use in the introduction, but I'll, I'll I'll use it to answer this question as well. Is is that famous scene in Peter Pan where Peter um kind of looks directly. It, in the theatre, looks directly at the audience. In in some of the cinematic adaptations, looks directly at the camera. Sometimes it's sort of more alluded to, um, where they say, you know, do you believe in fairies? Tinkerbell's lying on the ground. You need he needs people to clap to get Tinkerbell to stand up. So, do you believe in fairies? Um, and what's what is that asking us to do? Is it asking us to believe in fairies? Well, no, it's not asking us to believe in fairies. It's asking us to choose and that moment to not care that we. That, that it doesn't to not care that we don't believe in fairies um to not care and to choose to not abandon the movie and to and abandon peter at that point or tinkerbell um and 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 accept that you know and not behave like um another um character that comes up in the book you know the, the adult peter pan in hook who's constantly going oh this is obviously some sort of freudian nightmare uh based on my mother um to not do that and go it doesn't matter. It feels good. So let's go with it. Um, and I think within fiction, those moments are far more permissible than they are in real life. I think in real life, that's quite a dangerous thing to do. I think I'm a big fan of rationality. I'm a big fan of not just doing things that feel good. I mean, I think quite a lot of our our global politics is in a mess because people choose what feels good over what is actually sensible. Um, but I don't extend that to fiction. I think people know the difference between fiction and reality. They And a fantasy film in particular is, is calling out its fictionality to us. So going coming right back to Harvey, Harvey presents us with a choice. We know what the right answer is rationally. Elwood is hallucinating a rabbit. That's that's the, that's the obvious answer. That is what's happening. Unless anyone thinks that people can believe in in in, in um, invisible pokers and that's all fine, that is the answer to the movie. There's no riddle to be solved. That is the rational reading of Harvey. But we we don't choose that at the end of the movie when we watch him kind of put his arm around Harvey and walk off into the sunset together because it it doesn't feel good and and. And that's fine with the fiction, but that also then encourages us within that narrative system to think about values and 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 how we approach life. Because what actually that film is daring us to say is that kindness, compassion, um, um, friendship, these things are more important than an absolute hard down sense of truth. Now, I don't know if I subscribe to that idea, but I think it's quite a provocative, nuanced, and interesting question to ask the spectator. And if we don't articulate the way in which the films are doing this that, that that how they're appealing to to pleasure how they're appealing to our sense of triviality play fun then we're not we're not engaging with the substance of what these films are trying to say obviously harvey we know what the right answer is but the right answer doesn't feel like the correct answer by the time you get to the end of the movie yeah um in kind of running back to the introduction really quickly you say the worlds on screen become not faux realities that need understanding but fantasies that need experiencing and you 
you kind of drew that distinction, but you know, they can be effective and affective. Um, and to me, I, I, on the one hand, I say, well, this is kind of like, it's kind of giving yourself over to the movie and kind of, uh, putting a, putting a stop on the kind of ironic distance that a lot of, um, you know, when you do academic film criticism, you, you tend to want to have. And when I was reading this, I started thinking about, um, terrible confession uh, in some ways. Uh, I love professional wrestling. Um, but, but nothing is more exciting than giving yourself over and that moment when it's like, is he going to make the big comeback to, you know, to send the fans home happy? And it's like, you know, the main event will go 30 minutes and there will be back and forth and then there will be this, you know, this massive comeback and the good guy wins in the end. And it's asking you to believe in a way that you know, yes, it's fake and that's why I like it <laughs> because it lets me kind of play through these uh, concepts. I completely agree, and, and well, you know, I, I I watched professional wrestling as a kid. I don't, I haven't watched it since. But I, I always, when people say, you know, it's f- fake, like I think that's the stupidest thing you could ever say to anyone. Like it's like it's like it's like people who like walk out of the cinema after watching like. Um, you know, Avatar and say, well, that bit where the, where they jump from the giant, you know, alien bird onto the other giant alien bird in the cloud city, gravity wouldn't work like that. So I just, that stopped believing at that point. I'm like, what's going on? Like that, that, that kind of, that kind of, uh, desire to make things make sense and if that it doesn't it isn't doing that it's bad that's that's the culture i'm kind of trying to to unpack in the in the book and i think you're right with the professional wrestling but i think the only thing i would say is you, you even use the word believe there i don't think you believe any of this is real in professional wrestling i don't think you believe it in the same way i believe i'm talking to you right here right now but you you, you are willing to 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 enjoy the game because it allows you access to all these other kinds of pleasures, all these other ways of, of enjoying, um, you know, the f- baby face versus the, um, um, I can't remember the, the villainous term, but the villain versus the good guy um, and all these kind of moments of spectacle on screen. You don't, you don't believe that these people are the people that they're, they're portraying, but, that, but, that, but that's not a criticism. Um, we somehow got ourselves into a world where we think we have to use that word to give it legitimacy. I'm saying that word holds back what's actually going on when you're sitting there watching these people perform these incredible um, feats and, 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 and acts. So, 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 so let's, let's, let's embrace not believing. And you call that, um, and this is where I want to, I'm wondering, how else? I mean, we can say fantasy uh, fits inside genre entertainments, and you say a broader feeling of joy that comes from seeing the world in a certain way. And I immediately thought of kind of Richard Dyer's view of musicals, what utopia would feel like. Uh, and, as, and earlier you had said it's not like a musical number or an action sequence. Uh, and is, is it that similar thing that, that it tilts a bit more towards the, the affective rather than that kind of killjoy literalist reading of, you know, the, the effects of gravity and avatar. Yeah. Well, that, that, that essay is absolutely, um, fundamental to my kind of way of doing film. So I remember reading it as an undergraduate and just thinking if I could write something that is a 10th as good as this ever, um, that'll do. Um, and, and, and really right back in the primordial kind of vision of this project there was a desire to kind of articulate moments of fantasy like Dyer articulates moments of the musical on screen I think it's an incredible essay so I'm very flattered that you've made that comparison and yes I'm kind of alluding to it I think there is a limitation I don't want to say that or, you know, I think what I'm desperately trying to do here is give voice to a genre that film theorists don't really want to give voice to or haven't wanted 
to give voice to. So I'm always trying to struggle against letting it be like other things, because of course there are ways of comparing fantasy to the musical, fantasy to the horror film, fantasy to science fiction, fantasy to realistic drama. I'm not claiming that every single moment of every single film that we might call fantasy has no engagement with any notion of, of the real. I'm just, I'm just, I think what I'm saying is that we've spent quite a lot of time thinking about how these films function like all other kinds of films, other than the genre categories in which a large percentile of their audience will identify it being. So I'm very happy to, for, it to, for it to be kind of read along the lines of Dyer's Utopia. I think it's a really useful concept. I guess I, I'm saying that there's another way of accessing another kind of utopian sensation through the engagement with the fantastic that I'm exploring um, in the book. So... I'm, I'm, do one more and then we'll kind of switch up so we can talk about Conan. Um, <laughs> and then, sure. uh, you talk about, um, and, and you kind of just describe this, the, the enjoyable over the purposeful, it's kind of just a kind of a new way of, uh, of, in, of engaging. And I'm wondering, and I'm, I'm always going to be kind of going back to kind of, you know, my undergraduate reading in, in film studies, I get, there's this undercurrent of kind of a desire for um, treating uh, narrative cinema as non-narrative cinema treating uh treating narrative cinema as kind of a cinema of attractions uh and kind of by by flipping things around turning it upside down you open it up and so in hook you kind of you you link it to the narrative but also kind of to the aesthetic um and and to me i'm i'm immediately on board if i don't have to pay attention to the narrative uh because i'm like yeah whatever i know how it ends every time uh, and so is this enjoyable over the purposeful kind of um I mean, it seems to me that's the book's pedagogy. Um, did it kind of come out of um, teaching and like seeing like, oh, wait, this actually is the sort of thing that is something new and uh, it spurs a lot more in teaching. The, 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 um, I'm, I'm thinking that through. So um, so the, the book kind of, you're suggesting that the book offers a kind of pedagogical teaching of of in, embrace the, the the enjoyable over the the purposeful yeah okay am i offering that i think i probably am and, I, and i'm not sure i'm thinking about it on the perspective of being a lecturer but i think i'm thinking about it I, I i i all books are political um and i'm i wouldn't claim this book not to be political i think anyone that says anything's non-political is is far more political than those that write political with a capital p um but but i think if the book is political what i'm trying to do is is offer a a, a book that i would like to have read as an undergraduate which i didn't read very often which was that i was i my, my taste is obviously um as a film punter um skewed towards the mainstream given what we've mentioned so far um and my my sort of identity as a film fan and then a film um, student and then a film scholar um, has come out of the vivid encounters with mainstream cinema that I've had from a, from an early age. And those encounters have been extremely meaningful and profoundly affecting and often extremely intellectually stimulating, even if what's intellectually stimulating about them isn't the um, you know thematic paradigms of, a, of of twelve angry men or something like that. You know, I, th I find the Wizard of Oz extremely intellectually stimulating. I find Conan extremely intellectually stimulating. And as an undergraduate, I think I, I was frustrated that I fell in love 
I've, I've already fallen in love with popular cinema and then I found it, fell in love with film theory um, and psychoanalysis and these kind of dense theoretical works that I find so incredibly vivid and, and important and, and such a good way of critically unpicking so many assumptions that one can make. And yet the way they, if they ever did talk about mainstream cinema, um, the way they talked about it, I felt like I was being ostracized from the thing I was falling in love with at the same time, which again, if we want to bring Freud into the equation, probably suggests some sort of uh, masochistic or um, uh, underlying impulse to it all. Um, so I, I guess my, my, my quiet political project here is to write a book that offers the same kind of nuanced, sophisticated, theoretical rigor that I found in these other works of writing but offered a way of of articulating the experience of the of the popular and the pleasurable and the affirming that I got out of cinema at its most profound um without assuming without simplifying without taking things for granted but offering a way of taking pleasure see, as as Dyer indeed has said before right so I'm very influenced by that taking pleasure seriously as something that can be political, that can be radical, that can be conservative, that can be problematic, but can also be extremely affirming and, and progressive. And and those opening up those options is what I wanted to do in the book. So I'm really delighted you've described it that way. Now, readers can decide whether I achieve that. And I'm sure it's a limited, always partial success, but that's what I wanted to write. So um, that's what I tried to write. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On to Conan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was just so excited uh, to see someone writing about Conan. Uh, and so to kind of just uh, restraining myself to just have a couple of questions. Um, the one thing is you, you note the importance of establishing shots. And I, and I wonder, and like, is there a, a, a part of film grammar that is more underanalyzed uh, and underappreciated than the establishing shot. Cause what you do with, you know, it's like two pages with establishing shots. It, it, it kind of co- it covers so much ground kind of literally and figuratively. Um, why doesn't it get more attention? Cause in two pages, I was, I was just, I was wrapped for those two pages. I'm like, yes, yeah. more of this. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, yeah, I don't know. I yes, maybe. I, well, I think it, it, if, if for this project and for you know, the, the, essentially, we could call the Wizard of Oz shot, although it's a long kind of tracking shot. It, it is an establishing shot. One of the the functions of that, if there is a function to the shot I described in the Wizard of Oz, all the sequence you're describing in Conan on a on a narrative level, it's to it's to give the uh, spectator a coherent sense of the space in which the characters are walking into. And I guess that's the, that's the problem with an establishing shot, right? Is that it's always described extremely functionally and it's always the sort of setup to what's then going to happen the real stuff which is the characters moving saying stuff and and the narrative being expressed on the screen so so maybe it, uh, you know I've not thought about this before until you asked the question but maybe it's a, it's linked to this issue of of if all we do is 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 prioritize narrative and prioritize the kind of structures of of overt rationalistic meaning making that so the spectator can walk out of the cinema and and provide a synopsis of what they've just seen over all this other kind of wonderful stuff that's going on 
um, around the, the edges and just before that shot and just before that bit, um, it's going back to the same problem that, I'm, that we've diagnosed in this conversation of, of not doing justice to those moments that, that really is what the spectator is there to experience, or at least a spectator who is sort of coded to think of themselves or identify as, as being a fantasy fan watching a, a fantasy movie. Um, it's like plot spoilers, right? Who, 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 why are plot spoilers suddenly like this huge like faux pas when 99% of the stuff I'm watching, I already sort of know what the narrative's going to be and it's going to be one of three options at the end unless it's Game of Thrones and infinitely more disappointing than that. Um, you know, the, the, the narrative, only on rare exceptions do I care about plot spoilers. You know, I certainly don't care about plot spoilers watching a film like Conan. Um, I sort of know where that's going before, when I'm about two minutes in. So it's the narrative is, is, is merely this platform for all these little moments of, of excess, of, of pleasure. And, and that's what, you know, so... So that's what an, an establishing shot is also doing whilst giving us this kind of, you know, very logical, dry narrative function. Because yeah, um, I was thinking when the use of the word world uh, kind of in, in terms of movies, we can think of it as like, on the one hand, just like the, the setting, the place, uh, you know, we see, you know, you know, dry Spain where, where Conan is filmed. Um, and then we can think about it as kind of like a meaning making system as well. Uh, and then we'll, we'll get to the word that I have a hard time pronouncing that has to do with the diegesis that you, you read about. Yeah. I'm um, not sure. I'm not sure I'm proud of using that word either, but um, yeah, 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 fine. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but then it, I think that that takes me to the other one. When, when it talk with Conan's great prayer to Crom. Um, which to me is a, a, a great moment of excess to to bring up. <laughs> um, like you said, he has like 27 lines of dialogue in the entire movie. And one of them is this hilarious prayer, which at the end he's like, and if I don't get what I want, to hell with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so is how much of that is a narrative? And this gets back to my, is it 50-50, 51-49? How much of that is a narrative function? And how much of that is kind of a moment function to kind yeah. of say, no, this is, this is just kind of the world that Conan lives in. This is Hyperborea. Yeah. Well, we, sh- we shouldn't discount narrative entirely. The, that sequence is like the, one of the most famous bits in Conan. And, and there's a sort of, there is a climax happening in terms of narrative, right? He's sort of having to face off against this army of of, of, of people who, who, you know, is he going to win? Is he not? I think that's got to be part of it. But I'm with you. I think I think it's 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 momentary. And, you know, that's that scene is clipped all the time on YouTube. It's the thing that people remember about the movie. And, you know, you can bring it up now if it, listeners who are by a laptop, you know, you can watch it now and you can if you've seen the movie before to most even if you haven't there's a there's a real pleasure in the sequence in the way it's constructed in the way it's 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 the formal kind of beats and 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 yeah exactly the dialogue is insane um and all this kind of stuff and and it was a really difficult sequence to unpack as to what i felt was going on because i'm with you i'm like that's that's i've got to mention that moment because that moment is like one of the reasons I watch this film. It's it's I'm waiting for that speech in that moment, and and my reaction to it is very complicated because because I, I, in that um, bit of analysis, I do a lot to unpick. You know, I'm basically comparing him tacitly to Humpty Dumpty again, right? The the the, the prayer makes no sense. It's gleefully provocative, but also gleefully nonsensical. Um, I'm highlighting all these kind of paradoxes and 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 th- things that we can mock, and we're kind of me and you are laughing now, chatting about it. But I don't think the scene is comedic. I don't think I'm watching the the sequence and 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 I'm getting that kind of camp 
you know, aesthetic that Sontag might talk about. You know, I'm, I'm not deriding the sequence. I'm going with it. And I'm going with it in a kind of, um, you know, affective way. It really kind of sends the, the sort of, you know, shivers up your spine, even though it's it's nonsensical. And I think there's really something very complicated going on then because you're not with him you're you're not you're not identifying with conan and you're certainly not mocking him either so what you're doing is enjoying what conan provides this kind of yeah as you say this wonderful hyperbolic excess of 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 opera of words of moments of of the way the edit is used to kind of clash the solitary with the with the with the kind of group mentality of the army the the sounds of war all these kind of just pure sensorium that conan's prayer is giving you access to and you're sort of you're, you're there with them you're there with him without ever wanting to be or identifying or finding that the, the the, the pleasure in the sequence comes in the meaning of it because there's there's very little meaning in the kind of strict sense of the word. All the meaning is excessive and, and playful and frivolative. All right. Well, I, I will instruct people to read the the Conan part. Thank uh, you. Yeah, a rarely covered movie, and uh, so I think you've really you planted your flag, and it's kind of you get Conan yeah. kind of. And, as, as and, and again, like to compare it to Harvey, this, I talk about this in the book. I mean, Conan's a fascist. Con- Conan's a fascist. The film offers an incredibly odd celebration of 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 the muscular male um not helped by the fact that the, the male happens to be austrian it's all this kind of stuff and richard uh, robert roger ebert sort of famously declared the movie to kind of be you know a, a film sort of in the in the in the tradition of triumph of the will all of that is in there but again that's like to me to me that's like yeah and harvey it's obvious the rabbit isn't real like so so I'm, this doesn't mean I would. I like the fact that all that stuff's in there, but I do think that the stuff being in there is is certainly in the way I experience the movie, and I can only really ever articulate that. All of that stuff is background noise to to all the stuff we're we're talking about. So, whilst I'm I'm aware that there is probably a way of watching Conan and and seeing it as some sort of affirmation of an extremely far right worldview. I, I think that's an, almost an against-the-grain reading of the movie, even though that's the basic narrative building blocks, because it in, ignores all the pleasure to be found in, in the fun of, of its unreality. Yeah, If he's a fascist, he's an extremely um, hyperbolic and silly fascist. Um, so I don't know why people can't see that in the movie at the same time. Well, to go from a fascist to, to Mary Poppins... <laughs> yeah. uh, we said that so Conan a lot like Humpty Dumpty, and then I I kind of see there's a a lot of uh, a lot of similarities between some of the stuff you say about Mary Poppins and then Ray Harryhausen, because uh, you, you talk about Mary Poppins can make the world a reflection of her desires, and she kind of she teaches that to people, uh, and um, I feel like that also happens with Ray Harryhausen <laughs> that um, we get this kind of concrete you know, expression of his desires. It's still cool as to see um, on screen Uh, much better. I'll talk about CGI in a minute. Um, So you, you talk about another kind of phrasing that you use similar to what shows up in the introduction is um, an imaginative release from objective concerns. (laughs) Um, And I want I wonder, is this kind of at the heart of what, not just Harryhausen, which kind of gives us a really, um, like, you know, really concrete uh, example of this. Um, you know, how can we have 
a kraken. Oh, we have to <laughs> make a stop motion of it. Um, but it also then, you know, in miniature, it does what the film does more broadly uh, in this way of seeing it is that it releases us. Uh, and it's kind of, that's the, that's the license. That's the, um, the spur to kind of throw aside objective concerns for, you know, finding the, finding the excess and then kind of reveling in it. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think also one one I'd be careful to distinguish as well between sort of sort of I don't know pure objectivity if such a thing ever exists, um, and and faux and cinematic objectivity, right? So you know I don't I'm not I'm you know again like we can if we take this outside of the cinema we can get ourselves into very dangerous territory because it sounds like what I'm you know I'm suggesting is that there is something ple- there is something pleasurable about rejecting objectivity in favor of subjective pleasure people do this all the time and it's usually to the detriment of both their own well-being or societal well-being um within the cinema though this notion of objectivity kind of throws out throws out the window when when one watches a film camera and one assumes a level of objectivity to that film camera one is creating a fantasy of that film camera. And I try to work through this in, in, in the chapter you're mentioning about the kind of fantasies we bring to, to the way we perceive the screen. You know, when, when, when we see, even if we're watching some sort of, you know, even if we're watching a documentary, the, 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 the objectivity we assign to the screen is an imagined objectivity in the same way that our lives are often imagined to be more objective than they are. Back to that analogy I used about the kind of the, the um, passageway and, and, and one's fear associated with it. We, our lives are often residually more subjective than we like to think they are because objectivity brings certainty and brings a feeling like we are we are part of a cog and part of a functioning reality. So th- there are reasons we like to believe in objectivity that are as equally dangerous as the reasons we might want to embrace subjectivity. Um, and what the films of this era that we're talking about, sort of the 50s, 60s, 70s, what I class as the, as the wonder films, um, offer are, are exactly that moment of, of, of breaking that, that one kind of, of imaginative way of viewing the screen, which is to go, the camera is real, the camera is my eye, it's providing me a window to a world that has been filmed, um, and, and there's no subjectivity other than, other than what I might now interpret out of this image, and going, no, 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 the image itself is subjective, the image itself is manipulated and constructed and altered and, and, and changed and, and isn't real life, it's, a, it's, it's a, you know, to be very obvious, it's an image on a screen. Um, it, it's, it's, it's all this level of manipulation that we we pretend like we don't like quite often, particularly in special effects culture. Special effects culture is, you know, what's that? Supposedly, every VFX artist treats, um, teaches new interns that if we if, if people don't know there are any special effects in this movie, then we've done our job, right? That 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 we've 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 allowed people to continue to believe that, that, that the screen is objective. I'm not so certain. Um, I believe culturally we might have got ourselves to that point based on centuries of aesthetic thought, but you know, you don't, you don't believe that, um, well, the pleasure of Harryhausen is that he breaks that, right? He breaks it right in front of our eyes and, and, and it becomes impossible to see on screen any level of coherent objectivity because you have stop motion interacting with live action and you know it's there. Um, people talk about height, like these live action stop motion hybrids or live action um, cell hybrids as these kind of um, hybrid models that collapse the distinction between animation and live action. Um, an animation scholar called Cholodenko does a reading of Who Framed Roger Rabbit that's sort of exactly about that, breaking down the binarism of animation and live action. My only con- 
contention on that is that given all of these are fantasy movies, I would argue it's not a case that you're sort of not noticing the difference. It's sort of like oil and water. We, me and my co-host on the podcast you mentioned in the intro talk about this a lot. The oil and water of live action and CGI or live action and, and um, stop motion or live action and cell is that you spin it and you spin it and you spin it and you mix it and you mix it and you mix it, but you can always see the joins and you can always see the difference. Um, the excitement is in constantly keeping it in motion and keeping it vital. So yeah, break down the objectivity of an image with one fantasy and replace it with a fantasy of subjectivity that you can then bring to the screen that becomes affirming and, and pleasurable. Well, maybe then I'll, in the follow-up, I'll show my age a little bit. Um, I uh, see the Harryhausen, I'm on board with that. And then we get to the, the discussion of Fantastic Beasts, and I feel like the, the kind of the gee whiz techno wonder of the kind of, you know, and here I'll, I'll use like lots of bad terms and you can correct <laughs> me, like of the, the craft of the of yep. the models and, you know, frame by frame versus the kind of slick kind of almost, you know, not even realistic in its hyper realistic kind of um, you know, aesthetic that you get in like the Fantastic Beasts movie movies. Um, does does it carry the same and here does it carry the same kind of weight as kind of a 3D object that you can even see fingerprints on sometimes versus you know it's usually called like the weightlessness of of the digital image and in like spinning around that oil and water um, is it is it almost kind of like too like it's a, the, the the spin cycle is too fast for digital for an oldie like me versus this the spinning is you know it's good enough that I can see the oil and water in Harryhausen and, and that's uh, comforting to an old <laughs> well i think it's it's about it's about what fantasies you are able to enable by by watching the screen in this way right and and this is this is again this is a this is a a problem that's sort of implicit through what i'm writing about is that one you know when one does spectatorship theory one is always really only ever articulating one's own reaction because it's the only thing you can be certain about but one tries to offer reasons and credentials and 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 concepts to allow um, audiences to think about it for themselves at the same time and I, I try to allude to this in the conclusion I'm not what I'm, what 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 I, what I can't do is offer an explanation as to how you the the reader has enjoyed every single fantasy film what you've watched at but I have hopefully provided a, a framework for you to be able to do that for yourself and I think fantasy again we're talking about this paradox we're talking about this balancing act we're talking about percentages fantasy is such a precarious genre for exactly that reason and that's why it's been always very commercially um you know volatile so no one really knows what they want from a fantasy right some some the, the more mainstream taste out there probably if i had to speculate wildly because we live in a culture of of realism of naturalism of these kind of virtues being held up as aesthetics usually the more outlandish fantasies like the conans that we're talking about um aren't the ones that are are necessarily gratified or 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 validated by mainstream cinema culture what usually happens is we get a quote-unquote more naturalistic fantasy um emerging so lord of the rings game of thrones um game of thrones is a set both actually lord of the rings and the game of and game of thrones are essentially historical epics with um 
fantastical elements added to it once once the kind of credentials of that kind of sense of of authenticity is established it's very different to um i mean a movie that came out a year before lord of the rings was dungeons and dragons yeah Um, a movie i don't particularly care for but i can see opportunities for other people to watch and find extremely vivid examples of excess and hyperbole in the same way me and you were talking about conan earlier so to try and answer your question more directly i think i think what if if Harry Housen allows you to bring and and me um, a, a a variety of different fantasies that can allow us to appreciate it? Ideas of craft, celebrating ideas of labor, of the handheld, of the of of the material. Um, these kind of you know fantasies of objects that we have everyday life, we can bring to the screen for other generations and for vfx different kind of fantasies can be indulged so uh, you know a, a fantasy of technological ingen- ingenuity a fantasy of 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 vr and the digital and, and abstraction and 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 those kind of things that might play better in different generations and things like that i think the individual's baggage that they bring to the screen is really important in what kind of fantasies they're willing to indulge and which they won't and it'll go back to that thing i'm saying about i'm always fascinated by the person that comes out of the cinema and says i didn't like the bit where the balrog tried to fight gandalf with the wiz- with the staff um, or when the ember that he threw at the magical wizard glistened like that because i don't think underground it would look like that and everyone would be choked by smoke and you think that's very interesting. I mean, um, you know, it's funny, but it's very re- interesting that that's the moment you stopped, quote unquote, believing or stopped engaging with the movie because you could have, if you really wanted it to be realistic, you could have stopped about two seconds into the film and saved yourself an hour and a half. So it's when, when is it too much for some people? When is it too much for other people? And it's back to that balancing of act. If we think, we think we want escapism, but actually we don't. And we think we want to believe in the film as it is, but actually we don't either. So it's it's the seesaw. And, and uh, as you were saying, the ones that uh, how much fantasy do we want? You bring up that uh, where the wild things are, um, you know, a coherent strategy among Jones's storytelling priorities is to be inc- as incoherent as possible. Yeah, uh, which which certainly I think had had an effect on uh, how it was received by kind of a larger kind of a movie going audience. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, should be showing my age. I worked in the cinema at the time because I was, I think, I was doing the PhD and trying to earn some extra money. Um, and and I can remember like um, families would come in um, and uh, on like a Saturday morning and and pay money. I think I can't remember what else was on, but it was something like monsters versus aliens or some sort of cgi completely forgettable film that no one now remembers playing in the sort of cinema next door to where the wild things are and i remember me as sort of you know idealistic film fans saying oh no you've got to take and see where the wild things are they'll love it and then them like coming out shouting at me that like you know i want my money back what was that all about that made no sense you know you know it it, it, again what are you bringing to the film and what are you hoping that what kind of fantasies are you hoping to indulge i think with my sort of slightly older hat on what they wanted was a quiet saturday morning because it's probably been a busy week um because it's been half term um and the kids have been off school for five days and you really just want them to be quiet and sit there you don't really want them to contemplate the imaginative creative impulse whilst watching kind of two owls hoot at each other so i kind of get that um and that's fine and i don't mind that that's how we kind of use cinema um but yes it is it is about um what you're winging what what you know what's your sensibility and what fantasies you can bring to the movie um and what 
the form of the movie will allow will allow and 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 and, and invite um, at the same time. It's always that dialogue. Yeah, and the way you the way you kind of frame it in the book is you talk yeah. about wonder pulls you in and estrangement pushes you away and. You found wonder in where the wild things are, and it pulled you in. And it, but at the same time, Spike Jones estranged that that family and pushed them away. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Entirely. yeah. And, and it's kind of part of the, for that film. It's kind of part of the same seesaw because part of the wonder I find in it is its deliberately provocative attempt to estrange uh, viewers. But it's because it's because it's because the film doesn't keeps you keeps uh, rewarding those who who enjoy its playfulness and keeps you know um annoying <laughs> those who want a logical through line of narrative causality um and it and it, it and it and it deliberately does that i mean you know i haven't spoken to spike jones and i've not read an interview of him that, that has described it quite in these terms but you know you watch the film there are there are narrative threads that are quite explicitly set up and then completely contradicted in the sort of next act um things that don't make sense um are placed on screen provocatively for, for for very little reason other than the kind of to entertain it's 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 telling you what you should do to enjoy the movie <laughs> you don't have to do it if you don't want to um uh and you might not be able to do it because of the mood you're in or the situation you're in but but, but most fantasy films do tell you quite obviously what you need to do to enjoy the movie it's whether you're willing to do it is the kind of question that that, that or the difficulty of some of them all right. So as we wrap up, one mm. thing I noticed, and I have to have to ask you about, how hard is it to support Pompey? <laughs> I mean, I'm always excited when someone puts football in their academic book, and you yeah. did, so I have to ask. <laughs> it's it's very difficult for those who don't know who are, don't follow lower league uh, English soccer or football out there. Um, it, Portsmouth Football Club uh, have gone throughout every single division in football league. Uh, over my time supporting them and nearly went out of business about eight times. Um, and we we basically play in a shed uh, on the South Coast. Um, is it difficult? Uh, yes and no. We could talk about the politics of football and the pleasure of football, but it certainly doesn't make it difficult to, to be a fantasy fan because you need a good dose of imagination <laughs> and fantasy to go every week to Fratton Park these days. Although we're, 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 we're doing well this year. I think we're going to go up. So, um, so play up Pompey. All right. All right. Now back back to the serious business. Um, um, so, what's something that you've read recently? And this can either be fiction or kind of critical stuff um, mm. that you would recommend that kind of fits in the kind of uh, the fantasy uh, fantasy reading. Oh God! Right. Um, I'm I'm reading a lot about. Um... I'm reading a lot about ethics at the moment for a project I might or might not be writing about, so I won't divulge exactly why I'm reading it. But I'm reading a lot about ethics, and I'm very interested in in the 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 way we can talk about ethics um, in relation to fantasy cinema. Um, basically, for the same reasons we've talked about already, which is that I think that there's been this sort of you know really important and really vital ethical turn within film theory over the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years, and I'm not once again I'm not seeing a huge amount of it skewed towards the popular. Um, yet, but there's some really great work that's starting to kind of come out um, on that. Um, and Taja Lane's uh, book on the Hunger Games and um, emotion and kind of um, the role of emotion in, in processing and in understanding the Hunger Games, I thought was a really interesting engagement with a kind of sci-fi fantasy franchise, but took the franchise in 
seriously and, and, and engage with it in a really nuanced and, and interesting way and, and offered really great ways of thinking about the ways in which the wave, you know, the, the, kind of what I'm trying to talk about in the book, which is the way these films make us feel rather than make us think can actually have really important um, um, consequences on, on the way they offer us to think about ethics. So that was a really great book. Um, that I read uh, and I'm also there in terms of sort of on the ground activity the society of um or the association of fantastic in the arts is always full of really great scholars who write kind of across the literary uh, media realm they just did a conference up in Glasgow a couple of months ago which sadly I wasn't able to attend but I've been flicking through the the brochure and and trying to make contact with many of the delegates as possible because there's some really great work coming out of that field um about fantasy media more broadly so I guess those would be my two uh, recommendations Okay. And since you said you were going to hold the, the next project close to your chest, I want to yeah. ask the question about what's your next project. Okay. Uh, but I'm still interested in fantasy. I'm interested in exploring more theoretical avenues of, 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 of where we can, where we can articulate fantasy's presence. And I'm also interested in, in a more historical project thinking about fantasy pre classical Hollywood, because um, this book starts in classical Hollywood, mainly for practical rather than kind of um, uh, other reasons. Um, and I'd love to kind of tell the story of, of how we even got there. Um, Cause I think, you know, we think fantasy has been quite a modern genre, but actually it kind of, you know, it's obviously one of the most ancient genres. So I'd like to sort of do that. How that will come out, I don't know, um, but hopefully in some more books in the future, in the next few years. Excellent. All right. Well, the book, once again, is called Encountering the Impossible, the Fantastic and Hollywood Fantasy Cinema. You can also find Alex at fantasy-animation.org. Uh, and I would like to say once again, thank you so much uh, for your time. And I look forward to seeing what you have coming next. Thanks very much, Christian. Thanks for having me on.